there'll be another something, but it, there'll, there'll be something come up that'll be big. And this is, yeah, people don't realize it. Just like your first series on the 80s, being a child of the 80s, cutting my teeth there, that's influenced my whole life more than I realized probably. And then a lot of people have been influenced by ethanol and don't know it. The, the, the people that grew up and farmed their career with uh, $4 corn that give me a side glance and when I talk about $1.90 corn. This is Corn Saves America, a podcast exploring agriculture's environmental solutions from ethanol to carbon markets. I'm Sarah Mock. Confession time. When David Brent and I first talked about doing a podcast about ethanol, my vision was for a straightforward falling from grace story. Honestly, of the many ideas we discussed, I kind of thought spinning the tale of the rise and fall of ethanol would be an easy win. I thought that because, frankly, I thought I knew most of what there is to know about the ethanol story already. I've reported on the RFS and ethanol for years, and I had a front row seat in Washington to everything from EPA press conferences to meetings with Iowa Senator Chuck Grassley to White House press calls about E15. I even asked former President Trump about ethanol in an interview. I'm by no means a biofuel expert, but I've been around the issue enough that I felt confident that I had a handle on this story. I was perhaps a bit less confident about my grasp of ag carbon markets, but mostly in as much as I think very few people feel confident about what is truly known or currently knowable about ag carbon markets. Yet, I still feel like I had enough background and context to know the shape of carbon's evolving presence. Why am I telling you this? Because this is the perspective that I brought into my reporting for this podcast. Call it bias, call it feelings, call it an impossible to avoid point of view. This was my square one for this project, where I stood six months ago. Today, we're going to talk about all these ideas, about feelings and bias and point of view, and about how to know things and make predictions, not assuming that the information you have is unbiased, but by knowing that it is biased and what to do about it. First, though, I wanted to tie up some loose ends with David and Brent. The three of us got together for a final debrief, a freewheeling conversation about how our perspective shifted over the course of this project. We started by talking about the RFS. Here's Brent and David. Wow, this stuff, it's complicated. And we can look at it and one little piece of it and go, that was really stupid. And why would you have ever done that? But it's just, there's so much more stuff going on than we probably realized. And at the end of the day, you look at the ethanol deal. And I think a lot of your experts said that was, well, yeah, it's actually pretty successful. And if you just weigh, weigh it out and think about, they actually we actually developed, a, you know, they made the ethanol industry legitimate. It achieved its goal of producing that much stuff, and at a pretty reasonable cost, not without fits and starts. On the whole, I think the ethanol story has to give you some optimism for what can be done, because all the, all the things that people are quick to complain about with it at the end of the day it worked and that should i think give us hope that the same could be true with carbon because i think if i listen to these episodes i, I feel like the resident carbon skeptic on this podcast but 
maybe I'm being way too skeptical in the sense that we might end up doing something that actually makes a dent at some point. And so it may not achieve everybody's goals, and it probably won't. We know that. It's not going to be perfect. But maybe it works to, to some extent that we all sit back 20 years from now and go, yeah, that, that actually made a difference. I thought Scott Sklar made that point pretty well on the RFS. And he, by the way, was, I, I enjoyed listening to him. I think he's the one that kind of made me a little bit more optimistic because he's like, yeah, shoot, look at this. Look at what we've accomplished. And I, I thought that was, that was good. You need to hear that every now and then from somebody that says, yeah, there's, there's some bad things that could have happened or some things that weren't ideal, but on balance, that's pretty good. I don't think we can ever, um, move forward with policy when we know all of the answers. So we'll never have all of the answers that we want. At the same time, I think Dr. Breitz did a really good job of talking about how when we make energy policy, we do it when there's an energy crisis. And I think this is a, a good parallel that we tend to deploy policy solutions in the middle of a crisis. And oftentimes we don't have enough data and we're oftentimes trying to make it as quick as possible because by definition, time is of the essence. And so I think that is just something we always have to keep in mind. It's easy to sit back and say, oh, this policy didn't accomplish X, Y, and Z. It's never going to accomplish all, like Brent said, it's never accomplished all of the, the laundry list of objectives, but did it accomplish the big ones? To David and Brent and many of our experts, the answer to this question is yes. There were surely places where the policy fell short. Delivering on environmental benefits tops the list. But the big goal, to get more biofuels into the food supply, that was accomplished. We also spent some time considering the paths that ag carbon markets might be able to take, given the unlikelihood that relevant ag carbon policy will be passed on the scale of the RFS. Policy like this is rare today, and it should be noted that ag carbon market advocates are not interested in creating the kind of federally mandated obligations that arguably made the ethanol sector so successful. So what other paths are available to ag carbon markets? And I think on the side of policy too, like right now, you just can't even see how carbon policy would ever be passed in a bipartisan way. And that would be an interesting thing to go back and look at on the RFS is how bipartisan that actually was. But right now, it's hard to see how anything like that could even happen. But I, I don't think we should rule out the, the possibility that this current state of animosity could be changed for something different in the future. It seems like we're stuck in some kind of, I don't want to use the word equilibrium, but that's the one that comes to mind, but we're stuck in some kind of like random state where we keep, you know, bouncing back from one extreme to the other and, and, and a lot of fighting. But I don't think we can rule out the, the possibility that something will change and, and lead us to a, a future where we could again do large-scale policy like the RFS, even in the case of carbon. But it's going to take, it's going to take a confluence of events for that to happen on the federal policy side. Now, on the private side, it seems to me it's full speed ahead there. And I think it was pretty clear the lesson from this podcast is that 
that's going to be full speed ahead until it becomes costly and then it will change <laughs> so they'll just quit doing it nobody's the industry's not just going to charge ahead in an unregulated manner and do stuff that becomes really costly that's seems very unlikely to happen so as long as it's cheap and it's moving forward it'll continue to do but once it becomes expensive and binding and requires its actual change behavior which we talked about a lot then all bets are off and without binding policy the behavior is not going to change so i was over here looking up the vote for the energy independence and security act of 2000 and seven, the final version passed the House in December of 2007 by a vote of 86 to 8. And the House passed it earlier in December by a vote of 235 to 181. So support for both sides for passing that. I think the other thing to recognize is that the RFS has survived, but it has shown its age or it has shown some battle scars at his, as it has gone through. We are not using 36 billion gallons of renewable fuel, right? The cellulosic component did not materialize. And I think what the RFS has done that probably needs to be a very important lesson um, for carbon, and it's going to be something that I think about moving forward as well, is how do you balance the trade-off between something that's rigid, that you know thou shalt do this in 10 years from now or 15 years from now, with something that can be flexible given all the uncertainties that happen. So step back and think about all the things that the ethanol world had to navigate that just weren't of consideration in 2007. Energy consumption or gasoline consumption in the U.S. pretty much flatlined. The financial recession of 08 and 09, the pandemic of 2000, fracking new energy sources coming online, such as oil from fracking, and so electric vehicles. And so... I think RFS has survived. That is one takeaway, but it hasn't necessarily survived as folks thought it would in 2007. So it has evolved, right? It has been a policy that has been able to adapt and survive and thrive in that manner and that mindset. So I think that will be important for any type of policy that wants to implement change over a long period of time is we can set the goal marks today, but we have to have flexibility built in. Of course, that comes with a trade-off. Somebody could, that could be the, the flexibility could be the leverage that breaks it or allows for the dismantlement of it in the future. So that's a hard trade-off to balance. And I think one of the, hopefully one of the lessons here for listeners is that um, ethanol policy could have evolved in a lot of different ways. The RFS, it started as a tax, right? <laughs> According to Dr. Breeds, the White House was talking about a, a gas tax and, and then it eventually they put together a proposal that was for any type of alternative fuels. It eventually became Congress passed the, the ethanol side. And so it has a lot of different, it could have taken on a lot of different shapes. Um, and so we need to step back and just not say, am I for or against this broad policy idea and really understand the implications for your specific operation or your specific business, or even how you feel about how this legislation might get implemented. Does it really fit what you believe should be done? Again, I'm using the should because this is a societal question, right? Should society pursue this is something that individuals and decision makers have to think about. The other element here that has stuck with me is if you're a farmer or a producer or work with producers, I hope that one of the takeaways from this 
is that the impact that the RMS has had on the farm economy, we actually debated this internally a lot. How do we, there's a couple sentences that we were really trying to figure out how to, how to, to write it. And on one hand, it wasn't this perpetual demand story. It didn't create profitability in the farm sector for forever. It had a big impact on the farm economy, but we eventually overproduced commodities again. We eventually had um, burdensome supplies. We had low commodity prices relative to our cost of production. And from 2016 to really 2019 and parts of 2020, 2020, that traditional farm management, lean economic returns were back into place. So I think help producers and listeners recognize that if we're going to see a big economic windfall, it's probably not going to be this ATM machine that's going to be paying out every year. One of the most important impacts of the new information we've gleaned on how ethanol and the RFS eventually came to be was how it shifted our perspective on the RFS timeline and the potential future timeline of ag carbon market policy. It really underscored how difficult it is today to tell how close to the tipping point we might be. As we started this, I summarized ethanol, and I think it's still true. I think I believe this even more after listening to all the other experts is if you would have sat back in 1995 or 1990 and said, we want to put a policy in place that's going to create effectively 10% of the gas supply is going to come from this renewable source, and we're going to use billions of bushels of corn to, to do this, you would say it was an improbable outcome, right? It was highly unlikely, very improbable. But then all of a sudden, ethanol went from improbable to almost inevitable. And RFS just happened this time in history where there was an energy crisis and there was a problem and there was a lot of willingness to deploy this ethanol solution to fit that. And I think it's always important to recognize that ethanol had been around for years. It was a technology that had been around for a long time, but it had gotten better. So the ethanol we used, that technology we used in 2005 and into 2007 was much improved from what we saw from the years before. The technology did improve, but the idea was there for a long time. As it pertains to carbon, I remember in high school reading FFA speeches or doing a FFA speech talking about how no-till was going to allow you to sequester carbon and potentially get a payment. This was decades ago. And now we're sort of back into this conversation again, where can we maybe get a payment to do some no-till? But along the way, technology around no-till has improved a lot. No-till is much more widely adopted than what it was several decades ago. And so I think we have to recognize that um, with time, some of the problems or some of the solutions become more practical. And so we get things improve over time. And the other piece to that is in the right settings, what might seem improbable just a few years or decades before can all of a sudden be unlikely given the circumstances that we're trying to address, the political uh, challenges or the political opportunities. And I wouldn't think about carbon market mandates. They seem improbable today, but you can see a scenario where those might be much more appealing in the future, given how things might play out. Just listen to this discussion. It, it, it makes me think. So ethanol happened because of a whole bunch of wild things that we would have never, never thought possible happen. We had uh, a terrorist attack in the United States. Before that, I don't think anybody really thought or cared about where their oil came from. It was there, it was cheap, it was nobody really worried about it. We also had the environmental groups got behind it, and then you had some other things happening in, in the petroleum industry or the gasoline industry that kind of 
got got the ball rolling and so it was like you ask about a tipping point and it's weird because all these things happen at the same time almost seemingly random in hindsight we can tell a narrative that it all happened for these good reasons and the technology was there and the market came and the banks financed and all this stuff but it, it reminds me of the escapee 1980 lesson that we we talked about and we said the 1980s are never going to repeat themselves the set of circumstances that gave rise to the farm financial crisis are never going to exactly repeat themselves. And probably those set of circumstances that gave rise to the RFS are probably never going to exactly repeat themselves for carbon. But what we do know is that a lot of things will have to come together for that policy to happen. And it's really hard to, I think, predict how they'll happen other than keeping track of all these different undercurrents. I'd say we're closer now than than we were whenever I was writing those papers on biochar, which I think was like the early 2000s. We're closer now than we were then. And I think people have still been working on those things. And so eventually one of the conflation of events will happen that it'll take off. It will be interesting to see how carbon evolves um, and how those markets evolve. But what I think we know is that it's going to take some kind of a bigger tipping point, I think, than we've had so far to push it into action. I think we're close, but we don't quite have enough momentum yet to get society to move. And in many ways, that's what it was. It was like the RFS, ethanol was, we knew how to make it and all those other things were there. But we had never really gotten to real policy until there was like that tipping point, that push that got us to head in a direction of a federally mandated policy. And part of that push was MTBE and part of it was geopolitical insurgency, terrorist attack in the United States. And so it, it took that big push to get us to take that step off of the point into one of those directions. And for carbon, I don't think we've had that yet. I don't know when it will come, but I'm guessing it will at some point. So you never want to underestimate um, the power of big investments, government policy, and a long time horizon. A lot of things can change. And if you have a lot of money, a lot of policies in place in the long time horizon. And so I mentioned earlier this idea of, I remember reading about carbon markets and carbon credits from no-tilling when I was in high school. I think some of those challenges are still there. So it's easy to step back and say, oh my gosh, I've been thinking about this for a long time. But what has changed, especially in the last year or in 2020, 2021, is the, um, we've had a lot of time pass. So the work has continued probably silently. And so there are great scientists doing sort of foundational research on carbon and carbon markets and all of this work long before Joe Biden's mentioned it in his State of the Union address here in 2021. Um, but the thing that's really changed is now we have more money going in the space of carbon and carbon markets. We have policies sort of, you know, knocking around the edges, kicking the tires, figuring out how does policy really get involved? I think that's where policymakers are, is trying to figure out what do we need to do to help move this? So I, I sort of feel a little bit like we talked about with ethanol. It went from highly unlikely or improbable to almost inevitable. It's not inevitable. I'm not saying it is inevitable, but we're moving closer 
to this end of the spectrum because we've had time to solve problems. A lot of money has moved into this space in the last few years and policymakers are really starting to size this up a little bit. It was also around the policy side, what I think about is I get the impression, at least when I'm thinking about carbon and some of these meetings that, you know, we're at like 2007 with respect to the RFS. Like it's, we're really on the cusp of something really great happening. And we might actually be way uh, farther uh, back in the cycle. Like if you think of this as a football game, we're like at the beginning of the beginning of the first quarter. It is very, very early. And that really um, stuck with me is there's a lot of moving pieces here. I guess in history, you just kind of say, oh, we passed the RFS in 05 and then we did it in 07 and life was great. But that was actually a long, a long policy process. It started well before the RFS and state level policy really drove the RFS in that big energy companies, big oil, were trying to avoid this patchwork of state level regulations. And so this sort of got the RFS for 2005 when they're looking for the NTBE substitute. That was a huge catalyst for sort of them being on board and more receptive to this. And I think what's interesting is with carbon, we're starting to see some state level initiatives. And so I think that would be something really interesting to keep an eye on is what are these state level initiatives you know, how they move forward? And does this pave a path for more federal policy down the road? But again, it's early in the process. It may not look long ways down the road. Yeah, that's the thing that really jumped out to me is we, I think we knew that the, the RFS kind of came together really quickly and it was obvious after it got done that there was a lot of hindsight things that you're going to be like, oh, that, that might be a little bit of a problem here. It's going to have a, a lot bigger kind of implications than we thought it would. And I think carbon is like that on steroids because it's so much bigger. And I think it's been, it's more complicated and it's probably even less well thought out at this point. It's it's just uh, it's fascinating. Some of this stuff, I remember working on like methane gas reductions back in when I was at Cornell, and biochar. I, I wrote some papers on biochar when I was at Cornell. It probably they get cited more than anything else I ever did, and. It was kind of like we did that and it just disappeared for 10 years and now it's back and they see it. And I saw an article the other day about it as this potential thing that would fit into carbon sequestration. And I, it's just really interesting to, to think about and probably wonder whether we've really thought all this through even close to good enough because it's just so much bigger policy than, than ethanol. And I think in carbon, this is one of the things that, you know, we're focused on now. What's the payoff going to be? But the reality is that if you want people to do this stuff, you're going to have to have an incentive to do it. And the fine line is, when does that incentive become so big that it drives everything? It's just that fine line of, is it enough to incentivize anything or... Is it enough that it really drives massive change? And I think those that's a hard line to walk, and we'll probably miss it because it's really hard to get something to come in at the margin. I wanted to give David and Brent a last chance to talk about this very thing, the idea of what it could possibly look like to get ag carbon markets and ag carbon market policy right. 
given all the limitations that are currently out there. At the end of the day, every party in the chain, you know, has to do what they're doing to hit the rules so they can get paid to produce the product so they can get paid. And that all has to add up to actual net carbon sequestration for society to get that benefit. But along the way, it's the individual incentives that matter, not necessarily the big picture, and especially the way we're doing it with industry-led stuff. Google wants to put a sign on their website that says they've been carbon neutral since 2007. Why? Because they think it matters as part of their brand and their image, or maybe they don't want people to complain about all the energy they use, so they're trying to counteract it or whatever it is. They have a private incentive. And I think a lot of their employees probably really have in their hearts or a goal that you know, they they want to reduce carbon emissions, so it makes them good feel good to work for a company that does that. So they're getting their incentives too. And I think the real question, though, is is it actually doing what you know the society wants it to do? And that's a much harder lift. And if it's not designed properly, if you don't, I think if it's industry led policy, it's less likely to actually result in those emission reductions, but not for some nefarious reason. It's just everything will be optimized according to those incentives, whereas if it's policy, government policy, it's more likely maybe to be lined up to maximize that social goal. So one of the things that I think about is not all policies that we know are good for the environment, and even maybe good for climate change or good for carbon, are going to make a great carbon market solution. I think maybe no-till, for example, or cover crops, those might be examples of practices that are gonna be a hard thing to fit into the, the mold of a carbon market. Now, that isn't to say these aren't good practices for the environment or for society as a whole, and maybe society as a whole wants to pay for those in some way, shape, or form. It's just recognizing that it might not fit nicely in the uh, traditional frameworks of a carbon market as we've thought about them. And so we saw this kind of debate or this discussion play out and again, triangulating across the experts throughout the season. And and it reminded me of an idea that I learned from Dr. Otto Doring at at Purdue University. He was a great professor. And and one of the really interesting lessons that I learned and stuck with me for a long time is he shared this idea of intrinsic versus extrinsic validity. And the idea of intrinsic validity is something that is very replicatable. It's very scientifically proven. This, if you do X, then Y happens. Think of it as like these, you know, carbon cycles or this big processes. If you do this practice or don't do this practice, it can pulls this much carbon out of the atmosphere or sequesters it this much into the soil. So very solid intrinsic validity. But on the other side of the coin often is extrinsic validity. And it's this idea of these things really resonate with society. They resonate um, with individuals, and it's going to be able to incentivize those changes at the individual level. And so there's always this debate between intrinsic validity and extrinsic validity when you see a policy or you see a decision before you. And I think in carbon right now, we have a lot of uh, folks, maybe from the scientific community or the government side saying, we have to get the science right. We have to make sure that these practices sequester the amount of carbon that they're getting compensated for. And I think that's, you know, 
important. But I think we have to recognize on the other side, there are programs underway to really motivate producers to make changes and uh, move the needle. And we're probably never going to be able to completely satisfy that internal modeling, that intrinsic validation. And at some point, we have to start to move and you're going to see the, the momentum start to pile up for the these programs that incentivize behavior or they create some sort of change. And I think that's going to be a debate where we're going to start to see play out potentially pretty quickly. And then there's going to be a debate is the debates like, oh, was this the right thing to do or the wrong thing to do? Uh, and so there's just going to be this constant struggle between the two camps. I think even internally, uh, I struggle with this, this idea of, oh, I need to open up this Excel sheet and really crunch the numbers and get this argument ironed out and make sure I get all my data. And sometimes it's like, oh no, I just need to like make a decision at some point. I need to actually close the book on this and make a decision and, and, and move forward. So if you wait around for all of this stuff to be internally validated, the chance of getting the policy through might disappear. And so there's moments in time where you get to do things like this. And as your guest said on ethanol, feel like they're fleeting. It doesn't happen very often. And the amazing thing was that they actually got it done. There's a real trade-off there between getting something right and getting something done at the right time. And whether ag carbon market proponents will be able to thread that needle and get those decisions made in the way that ethanol advocates did is still unknown. But the problem is, we want to know the answer to those very kinds of questions. And what's more, we think it's possible. The first step to solving some of these big unknowns is to answer a lot of smaller questions. Where the science is, who the lawmakers and stakeholders are, what's the public's interest and appetite, who wins and who loses, the list goes on. But as our journey through the history of ethanol showed us, it's not so easy as collecting that information and tallying up the answers. Who you get that information from matters a lot because different players can have completely opposite perspectives. Bringing in a bunch of experts this season, especially those who aren't in the commodity ag mainstream, was one of the really exciting aspects of putting the show together. Not only because they were a blast to talk with, but because there is a lot of value to be had in hearing from well-informed experts whose perspectives differ from, we'll call it, the company line. This is because the truth is complex and it's difficult to capture it in its entirety, there's a good strategy here to use when trying to answer tough questions. Here's David. It reminded me of the, I, the mental model of triangulation and this idea of how do you uh, really deepen your thinking about a subject that's complicated, especially like the history of RFS or maybe the future of carbon markets and carbon policy. And the key idea here is sort of like GPS satellites. One data point isn't sufficient enough to really, you know, guide your tractor. You need multiple satellites. And those satellites really do a good job when they're looking at the differences between those individual observations and they try to do that. So we should look at a lot of different experts and a lot of different viewpoints. And I think with RFS, it's easy for ag to talk to ag uh, folks and ag policymakers and sort of get one narrative. But for this policy to make it through Congress and make it through all the hurdles that it's made it through, and to be where it's at today, it had to have a lot of constituents. And those other constituents had other sort of vantage points. And so it's really valuable to sort of focus on where the experts have a slightly different version of the story. And that can help us think critically about how complicated and nuanced and, and challenging it was. So <laughs> I think the really hard thing with triangulation is 
what do we do with differing viewpoints? And it's just really easy to make piles of, these are the things that I agree with. And then you scatter everything else uh, around the room, sweeping up the house a little bit. So as a decision maker, we have to be very diligent of how we sift through differing opinions. And I'll give you an example is if you go to a conference and you have a panel, a, a panelist, a group of panelists on the stage, the narrator, the MC will typically wrap it up. Here are three things I heard from all of the panelists in today's discussion. And they highlight sort of three common threads that everyone's agreed on or everyone that resonated with everybody. And it'd be easy to do that from this season of the podcast. But I think what you really should do is step back and say, where are one or two areas where the experts really disagree and or how they have a different viewpoint of how things might play out in the future. And that's really valuable for us as decision makers, because we can use that as a bit of a template or a roadmap as for what may come down the road. As we step away from this season in a year or two or three or four from now, you can step back and say, okay, expert one thought that it could head this way. And expert two thought plant path B might be more possible. And you can see how those start to play out. And you can follow that forward as the narrative or as the uncertainties start to resolve themselves into the future. And so don't just find the similarities and capture on them. Highlight differences, focus, not don't focus on the differences, but understand the differences very clearly and see how those differences play out as we move forward. Before we change gears here, I wanted to take a moment to check in on the whole idea of comparing ethanol and ag carbon markets. As I said in episode one, in some ways, this exercise didn't seem to make much sense. The similarities between ethanol and carbon markets seem kind of superficial, and their differences are glaring. But I think one of the most valuable parts of this exercise was not finding the places where ethanol offered insights on carbon, as much as it was those instances when thinking about ag carbon markets prompted me to think about ethanol differently. Questions that might not have occurred to me to ask about the RFS and the rise of ethanol seemed obvious when thinking about it in comparison to where we are now with the ag carbon market timeline. That comparison, in other words, made me think differently about both issues, and in that way, broaden the scope of this podcast to consider a lot more possible futures. And in my mind, broadening that scope is the best way to make predictions about anything more likely to be accurate. This is important to mention, I think, because it helps us get to a deeper takeaway from this season, for us and hopefully for you too. Ethanol is a story I felt confident I knew, and it wasn't until I scrutinized it side by side with carbon that I realized that the story was way more complicated and that my bias was becoming part of what I knew. So let me take a moment to put all the biases I've detected in my own thinking on the table. I definitely illustrated some availability bias, where the information I could most easily remember about ethanol was what I knew that was relatively simplistic. I'm also dealing with some selection bias. The simple narrative I first learned about ethanol is the story I pay the most attention to. And the more people I hear discuss those same details, the more I feel confirmed that my simplistic narrative was correct confirmation bias. And I definitely experienced some elements of what's called the Dunning-Kruger effect, where I simply wasn't aware of how limited my knowledge on this subject was. I felt confident in the relatively small amount I knew because I didn't know how much there was to know. David will talk more about this in a minute. But the good news here, I think, is that though we all have biases, it's possible and important to challenge them. David Brent and I spent most of the rest of our wrap-up conversation discussing biases, how they've shaped the way we think about ethanol and ag carbon, and what we've learned about adjusting for them going forward. I think the important thing to remember, and I try and tell myself that every now and then, 
I think economists by nature are pretty pessimistic. We tend to see all the different ways in which something can't work or reasons why it won't work or the reasons why it's a stupid idea. And I think that's part of your training as a professor at a research university and that you just you spend all of your time looking for ways to poke holes and people's arguments and tear it apart and it's a really negative i don't know negative approach to things so i think i do think they're like you said and i think the the whole lesson rfs makes me a little bit optimistic and i think we need to be optimistic because doing nothing or just being pessimistic about all of it is probably not gonna accomplish much other than maybe you if, if you want to just have the status quo, and, and there's problems with the status quo, too. You can sit there and go, this is, could be bad for all these reasons, and the current situation could be bad for all of Y reasons. So I don't know that there's a lot of cost to being optimistic. I think it's there's in saying that, we have to be prudent in building policies and avoid some of the mistakes that we've made in the past. And... Uh, that I think is is the most important lesson is just try and do it so it doesn't cause all these problems. We don't bake all of these problems in that we did in the past. I think sometimes we have to think about what does it mean to be critical or skeptical or something. And I think Brent and I personally have thrown these terms around to describe our sentiment or our thoughts about some of these technologies or these ideas around carbon. And I think that doesn't necessarily mean we're pessimistic. I think that and even pessimistic, right? It probably needs to be defined. But I think the idea here is there are some big question marks out there for us. And so I think one of the goals of this season was to help highlight some of the challenges that the decision makers or the individuals or the policymakers, everyone in this space has to overcome and move through. And I think one way to think about this is borrowing the framework from the Ag Forecast Network. What's the probability of agriculture being able to sequester X? tons of carbon in the next 10 years. I think that might be a, a, a way of framing up this uncertainty. And you can do this probabilistically. You think, what's the probability of this happening? And you can change your expectations over time. And I think my forecast of this hypothetical question would have increased as we dove into some of the um, uncertainties a little bit and learn from all these experts and these differences of opinion. So if you're an individual listening, I think that you should Think about what is the, the big picture goal? Is it agriculture being able to sequester uh, a, a certain amount of carbon in the next five or 10 years? And what's the probability of us making progress towards that? Um, and highlighting some of the key variables that have to come into place to make that a, a more likely or less likely reality. In the process of making that analysis and gathering that information, however, it's inevitable that bias and more generally our feelings and perceptions will creep in and play a role whether or not we intend them to. Putting in the work to interrogate those feelings is critical if our aim is accuracy. In short, good analysis includes recognizing why we are attached to certain stories and ideas and why we are quick to dismiss others. Well, the first thing that comes to my mind is a tagline we like to use is to be your own guru. I think one of the things we have to be careful with, especially in this space, is there's just a lot of people telling you how you should feel about different policies and different ideas that are circulating, you're going to have to roll your sleeves up a little bit and, and dive into the details a little bit and really understand the implications for your operation, 
for your business and then how you think that this should uh, impact you know the future of society as a whole. Another thing that comes to mind is the Dunning-Kruger effect. And the Dunning-Kruger effect, it's, a, it's well documented. It's this idea that sometimes we know, learn just a tiny bit of information. We feel very confident about um, conclusion, or we feel very confident that we're a subject matter expert. And then what we also find out is as you start to learn more, the more you learn, the less you know. We've all heard that. But as you start to learn more about a subject matter, your confidence starts to, get to drop. And in fact, the curve goes up really fast and down really fast for the, the, the first little bits of information. They call it the valley of despair. So a lot of folks listening might feel like they're in the valley of despair about carbon. We spent about nine hours uh, sharing ideas, and so it kind of can feel overwhelming. But how do you get out of that valley of despair is you just keep probing and prodding and digging in to those areas that are most relevant to you, most relevant to the decisions you're going to make. And you realize that you're probably never going to be as confident about, is this a good or bad idea? Or is this something that we should or should not do? Um, as you were as a, an armchair expert, the first time you heard about carbon markets, maybe that was me as a high school student thinking about carbon markets as it pertained to an FFA speech. Like It'd be funny to go find some of those Actually, my grandmother shared a speech that I did write for the FFA when I was talking about precision technology. It was in you know the 90s and early 2000s, and I was very confident when I wrote about that. But as I've you know learned more and as I've aged, there were statements in there that I just wouldn't say today. So I think a lot of times we have to recognize that we just have to keep probing and drilling down and understanding that um, the lack of confidence or the uncertainty or the unknowns is probably a sign of really understanding the complexity and the nuances of the decision. And we have to get comfortable with that. We have to be comfortable with um, not having all of the data or all the information that we would like to have. There's always going to be things that are unknown, things that we can't know, and things that we have to keep pursuing to figure that out moving forward. So I think for all of us who have listened to this, this has been our own little Dunning-Kruger uh, experiment where we might feel like we know a little more than we knew before, but we might be less confident in some of our initial opinions or stances on the issue. And we have to continue to work on those. Yeah, I think you hit on a lot of really important concepts there, David. And, and I feel like we all are very quick to apply our, our feelings or our beliefs to any kind of idea. I know after listening to the podcast and hearing from all the experts, maybe I was a little too pessimistic about some of these things, but I think it, I think you're right in that we're quick to form these feelings and we're all armchair uh, epidemiologists or biologists now because of the pandemic. So we all know more about antibodies than anybody else. And we don't, we haven't realized what we don't know and how complex it is. Uh, and I think a lot of that is, is true with carbon too. And so I think the key is to withhold your feelings and your judgment and really try and understand and educate um, yourself as much as you can before you jump to conclusions about what the end result is going to be. And like my moment in this podcast that really, I, it shouldn't have really blown me away, but it did, is when one of the experts was talking about different types of 
carbon policy and she's we could just everybody gets like a benchmark score on carbon if you're below you pay in if you're above you you can sell it off and i'm like that's a very because because i had been set on this idea of additionality it doesn't even matter additionality doesn't matter if you structure the policy this way and you could have a good outcome with that so it, it was like a real wake up that yeah i've thought about this a lot and i've worked on this stuff a lot and i was blown away by that idea it never even really occurred to me and i don't know why it hadn't but it was a real wake-up call and so i think what you're saying david with the dunning kruger is that we need to keep working at it and learning and thinking and being open to changing. I don't necessarily changing our opinion, but updating the data and the information that we have about whatever it is we're thinking about because it's really hard to know know everything. The hard thing, though, is that we can always sit back and throw our hands up in the air and go, well, we just can't know all this. And that never leads to any action. That's like the professor view of it. We just, oh, geez, we think all these big thoughts and here's all the different things. That, but at some point we have to do something and we have to step forward and do things. And so I think with Carmen, the question is going to be, what's the best of all the directions you think of yourself sitting on a point and you could go 360 different directions, which is the heading that you want to take that first step in. And I think we can know which directions we don't want to take the first step in. It's also important to recognize how do you update your thinking when you might be going down the wrong path? How, you can take a direction, but when new information becomes available and new the conditions change, how do you alter your course a little bit? I think as we were thinking about the future of ethanol, some of the experts laid out some alternatives that ethanol's future might have. And so even within ethanol, we've had 15 years of sort of policy here. There are still question marks and uncertainty in where the industry might be going. And I think that kind of ties into, you know, we could be supportive of ethanol. We can think it's been good for our operation, good for the economy and good for the environment, but we still have to have a conversation about where does that fuel fit into the future? And we have to recognize that the future is evolving and it could be a good solution. It's just a question of, especially it's been a good solution for the past, but how does that past solution fit into the future and how does that move forward? And I think um, that's going to be true regardless of the decisions we make, right? We always have to make decisions and we have to figure out a way how do we update our thinking and how do we given new information. So it's easy to point at the problems and it's easy to support something blindly. It's really hard to come up with a solution and acknowledge all of its warts and imperfections and trade-offs. For me personally, this whole season was an exercise in this very work, updating my thinking. At some point, I started thinking about what I know about ethanol and ag carbon as existing in one of four categories. This might get a little confusing, but bear with me. I promise it'll be worth it. The four categories are the known knowns, the unknown knowns, the known unknowns, and the unknown unknowns. The first, the known knowns, that stuff I thought I knew, and I did. RFS2 was signed in 2007, ethanol hit the blend wall in about 2012, etc. The last two categories, the known unknowns and the unknown unknowns, those I can't really do that much about. Known unknowns include things like the timing of ag carbon market policy, something I'm fairly confident will come but I don't know when, and I don't really have a way of figuring out when. Unknown unknowns are, well, unpredictable. It's that fourth category that I found I worked on the most this season, the unknown knowns. 
the things I thought I knew, but I actually didn't. To me, these are the most problematic because the truth was knowable and it was only bias or more generously time limitations that kept these ideas unknown to me. In this way, finding ways to shake off the cobwebs on old ideas and making sure they evolve isn't just about being a history buff or a know-it-all. It's about staying ahead of what comes next and not coming out of the next big thing, good or bad, thinking I could have guessed that was going to happen if I had only been paying better attention. Over the past several months, I've learned a ton about ethanol and ag carbon markets, and at least as much about identifying and challenging my own internal biases. One of the first steps I took was to spend some time, whether I was reading an article or scrolling on Twitter, to stop before I hit like or forwarded something to a friend to think, what is it that I like about this? More often than I'd like to admit, the answer was, more or less, it proves that I was right about something. When that was the case, I challenged myself to take five minutes and do some background research from other sources. Essentially, every time I did this exercise, I found that my conclusion, and the media I'd found and liked, was oversimplified, biased, or in some cases, verifiably false. I was reminded that the world is a complex place, and rarely is complex truth capturable, say, in 280 characters. As a jumping off point, if you're interested in doing this work yourself, I'll propose a first exercise. Right now, you're listening to a podcast called Corn Saves America. Why did you pick this podcast? Maybe you're an existing AEI subscriber, or you already heard season one, and the title didn't matter that much to you. But do you think if the title had been Corn Destroys America, you would have been as willing to listen? even if the internal content were identical? Did your bias towards American agriculture, corn production, and your belief in the inherent benefits of both make this podcast more interesting to you? If that bias was all that was driving you, I doubt you'd have made it this far into the season, mostly because this hasn't been the straight celebration of corn production or even corn ethanol that the title implies. But I hope that here, as we approach the end of another season together, that whether the title mattered to you or not, You feel, or I should say think, that you've heard meaningful and balanced, if unconventional, perspectives on the ethanol and ag carbon sectors, and that we've done our best to challenge our biases whenever possible, and have been transparent about them in the meantime. We have more ways today to find things that conform to our feelings, beliefs, you know, and attitudes than we ever have before. So if you think corn is the superhero, you have lots of information there. If you think it's the villain, you have lots of people there that you can find that will comport to your ideas. But at the end of the day, uh, I view that I think corn did make a real benefit and it really did make things better, I think, with RFS. Not dramatically, but I view it as the superhero, kind of wounded, but it's still we're better than than we would have been without the RFS, I think. So where does all this leave us? We'll close where we started, with the question I asked at the very, very beginning of this season, about whether or not corn really could save America from environmental calamity. The best answer I've got at this point is, I think the RFS achieved something kind of extraordinary as a market and a policy. But was that achievement saving the country or the world from environmental degradation? No. When I think about ag carbon and its potential to mobilize commodity grain production as a tool for carbon sequestration, I worry that the story will be much the same. I just can't shake what Mitchell Horror reminded us, that agriculture, grain farming included, is a net emitting activity. 
how much carbon would have to be sequestered in soil simply to offset the emissions released through the use of carbon fuel derived ag chemicals, diesel, and in shipping agricultural products? We don't actually know a good answer to that question, but I feel confident that it is, at the very least, far more ag carbon than we are currently attempting to sequester. So if I were answering that same question, can carbon sequestering corn save America or the world from environmental degradation? I think the answer is still likely no. In the case of ethanol, a technology was sold as a way for agriculture to solve a big social, economic, and environmental problem. But in the end, the biggest beneficiary of the RFS was arguably farmers, who from 2007 to 2013 experienced some of the highest prices ever recorded for commodity corn after a decades-long slump. Though the promise was that corn would save America, in the end, America saved corn. That ethanol failed to meet its environmental promises turned out to be relatively unimportant. I don't know if the same could be said for ag carbon markets, because the biggest difference is you can't put a carbon credit in your car and make it go, nor can you really do much else with it except buy and sell it. I think there's a deeper question there at the intersection of ethanol and carbon markets. Both promised, in addition to other benefits, to transform the economics of commodity grain production. But a reality there that we don't often reckon with is, what is it about commodity economics that isn't working for us? And given all that we know, is a new market really capable of altering the fundamental incentives in that system? Whether we prioritize the environment, the economics, or both, ag history has shown us again and again that the answer is no. The ag economy is cyclical, and it takes more than the latest big thing to make lasting change. Well, this has been the final episode of Corn Saves America, season two of AEI Presents. We want to thank all of you listeners who have been following along this season and last season. Hope that you enjoyed all that you heard. And uh, I want to say a special thank you to David Widmar and Brent Floyd, who trusted me to tackle this podcast and these two very difficult and controversial topics and do them justice. Uh, I appreciate the opportunity to get to do such a fun project. AEI Presents Corn Saves America is a production of AEI Premium, produced and edited by me, Sarah Mock, with special thanks to David Widmar, Brent Gloy, and Sarah Hubbard. Our music is by Valentina Grimnova and Boris Skolsky. If you've enjoyed the show, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and look out for Ag Economic Insights and the three of us on Twitter, LinkedIn, and at the website, aei.ag. If you haven't had enough ag history and economics, make sure you head to the website to learn more about becoming an AEI Premium subscriber. As a subscriber, you'll get access to a lot more content from the three of us and from the rest of the AEI team, including Megan, Jeff, Michael, Mason, Ryan, and Aaron. Thanks and so long.